Hello, and welcome to the Marysville Journal Tribune podcast. This episode is brought to you by Axiona Energia, proudly bringing solar power to Union County and the Buckeye State. My name is Michael Williamson, and this week's episode is a little bit different. We have another guest on the show, a guy named Michael Alago. Uh, Michael is not uh, local to Union County or to Marysville uh, or Ohio for that matter. He was born and raised in New York City and lives there currently. But the reason we're talking to him is that he will be bringing a documentary uh, about his life called Who the F is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, which will be playing at the Avalon Theater this Saturday, uh, July 29th at 6 p.m. Uh, Michael will be showing the documentary and reading from a book he also wrote about his life. And the reason we're talking about his life is because... In his career as a person in the music industry, he signed the band Metallica. Yes, that band Metallica, as well as White Zombie, Rob Zombie's first band, The Misfits, and many other bands that uh, people would probably recognize from the punk rock or heavy metal genre. Michael, who was born in New York City, uh, spent his teenage years going to clubs, famous clubs like CBGB in New York, um, following bands around, getting to know people, and that passion and love of music essentially translated into a career in the music industry where it was his job to bring in new talent to a record label, uh, and one of those bands was Metallica. So Michael was really generous with his time. We had a, a great conversation about his life uh, and career. Um, we did, as I said, he's born and raised in New York. He still lives in New York, uh, so we talked over Zoom. Um, so I apologize ahead of time for the sound. But uh, it's a great conversation. Um, he's a great storyteller, and I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you come to the show. So here's Michael Olago. So, so with the book, how, how did that start? Well, the book came about because of the documentary. This director in New York, Drew Stone, um, knew about me, and uh, he knew about my music career, and uh, he knew that I was also sober, which was, you know, which was great. Uh, so he would always say to people, I see that guy all the time backstage right. and it shows. And of course it turned out the title of the movie is, you know, who the f is that guy? It's funny and it's provocative, the title. And, um, we made this film and it came out pretty darn good. And, mm -hmm. um, immediately we got picked up by Netflix. And so that's how a lot of people first came to see the film. Yeah. And uh, after those first mm, three years on Netflix, we immediately got picked up by um, five new platforms. So it's like I liken the documentary to the little engine that could. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, a lot of times people see a doc, it's on Netflix, and you never see it again. Right. We've been very, very uh, lucky, if you want, if you want to use that word, if I want to use that word. We've been very lucky that, you know, immediately uh, after uh, Netflix, we got to, we are on Amazon Prime, Tubi, Google Play, uh, Xbox, and one can rent it on YouTube. Yeah. So we're out there still a couple years later in a very big way. And, and that's a blessing, if you ask me. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, about 2017, 2018, uh, this little book company called um, Backbeat Books called and asked if I had any more stories. And I thought to myself, do I have any more stories? Of course I do. I have a million stories. Sure. You know, you know in, the, in the 77 or 80 minutes that the film is, you know, you really just can't tell every single story. Right. Uh, but you give them the highlights and maybe the low points in my life because, you know, not everything is, you know, 
sunshine all the time. Right. Uh, so that's how the book came about because these the publishers saw the film, they thought something good about it, and they wanted to know if I had any more stories. And I do tell lots of stories in the book that are not in the documentary. I didn't wasn't sure what came first, and and that makes yes. sense because as you said, you know, it's like right off the bat, you know, you read in the description who you signed, who you've kind of you had a career with and then mm -hmm. as the documentary comes on and you start to see those photographs that they use as sort of during the credits he's with springsteen and he's with you know debbie harry and he's with all these people as a young guy and it's like well this began early and then went on so I, i'm sure yeah there's there's just millions of things there well you know like i um mentioned at the beginning of my book uh i've always i came out of the womb loving music yeah and uh you know, at a very early age, as a young gay Hispanic kid growing up in Brooklyn, um, I love music. So I would listen to um, 77, I had a little transistor radio and a little Panasonic record player that I would sit on my stoop and just play 45 records. Um, yeah. But I was listening to 77 WABC. And uh, back in the day, AM radio was not heavily formatted as it is today where we hear a lot of the same things over and over again you know back in the day listening to am radio we heard or i heard everything from uh aretha franklin to todd rundgren uh archie bell and the drills to um, you know a grand funk railroad i don't know you yeah, know there was so much stuff yeah. and then of course, at, a, at a young age i i watched um Dick Clark's American Bandstand right. and Don, Don Cornelius's Soul Train. Right. And that, between AM radio and those programs, my ears got opened up to such a wide variety of music, yeah. which again was like tremendous. Uh, right. Another blessing, an early blessing that sure. I got to hear all this stuff. And um, well, at one point, I thought to myself, well, you don't play an instrument, but uh, you're not going to be a soul trained dancer. And you think there might be more than rating a record uh, like all the kids did on Dick Clark. But what is that? Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I'm a young kid, 15, 16 years old. I don't know why my mother let me go out a, late at night. Uh, at one point, I was in all boys Catholic high school, Bishop Ford. and uh, But I always did well in school. And my mom just trusted me. And she knew I had this great love of music. So she just, you know, said all her prayers for me and uh, just let me go out and be and go out and be wild. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that wildness. Um, which was a positive thing, uh, uh, was that I practically lived at CBGB from right. 19, um, oh, 1976, 75, 76, until it closed October 15th, 2006. Uh, and I went to Max's Kansas City, and I went to Great Gildersleeves, and all of these clubs that were open because I wanted to hear the music, all kinds of music. And, you know, there was a publication back then called The Village Voice. Sure. Uh, at one point, it might have been free, and at another point, it might have been a, a dollar, yeah. and came out every Wednesday. And I would get The Village Voice because I loved the whole back section, whether it was um, music, 
art, theater, pornography. I just loved it all. I wanted to research all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And there was, and there was all, on one page in the back section, there was always this um, top to bottom narrow ad for CBGB. And okay. I remember one of the early days, I, I, I remember seeing, I saw that this uh, band was called the Dead Boys. They were coming in from Youngstown, Ohio. Um, Hilly Crystal, the owner of CBGB, um, had heard about them and he was already managing them. And I went to see them live and they went, became one of my fa all-time favorite bands uh, from that day. Um, I even started a little fanzine called All This and More, which was one of their songs on the album Young, Loud and Snotty. So yeah, so this whole thing of, well, I don't have a music career yet, but I'm out every night and I'm seeing and hearing everything from the clubs to things that are happening at Madison Square Garden. Um, so like I said, music was my entire life. Fast forward maybe just a little bit. Um, I remember after I graduated high school, I was uh, going to the School of Visual Arts in New York City and I was working um, at a pharmacy at a municipal workers union. And um, like I say in the film, I must have been 19 years old. I was taking lunch one day I was in the East Village and I walked down 11th Street and I saw a beautiful Art Deco building and I just thought, wow, this is really cool. And on the Art Deco building, there was this just like white piece of paper, like eight by 10 piece of paper that said video club opening, resumes wanted. And I thought, video club? Hmm, what's a video club? Right. Resume? I don't have no resume. So I decided I'm walking in anyway. Right. And I walked in and um, I was kind of stunned at how beautiful the building was. You know, it's been there since, I don't know, maybe the 1900s or what, maybe the 20s mm -hmm. when Deco was popular. It was really just an extraordinary building when you looked around. And, you know, all of a sudden I liken it to the Wizard of Oz because I'm just looking around and there's a man in the balcony and he said, uh, kid, can I help you? And I was like, wow, this is a beautiful building. Your the sign on your door said that you're looking for people to work here. But uh, he goes, do you have a resume? And I said, no, I don't even know like really what a resume is. I don't know. I go to the School of Visual Arts and I love music. And he thought that was uh, kind of funny, like a chuckle. And he called me up to his office and his name was Jerry Brandt. Uh, yep. God rest, God rest his soul. Um, he died about a year and a half ago. He was in his 80s, part COVID, part... Uh, pneumonia, whatever. Uh, but anyway, he was extraordinary, Jerry. So I went up to his office and he just started asking me questions about music, about all kinds of music. And we talked about everything from the Great American Songbook to what was happening in New York City and the underground scene on radio. And uh, he said, I like you, kid. I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to answer my phone. And you're going to get my lunch. And I thought, oh, my God. Perfect. I'm in, I think I'm in the music business. <laughs> and really, it was the real, it was the tried and true real yeah. beginning at 19. So um, I, uh, 
I just thought, well, School of Visual Arts is not for me anymore. So I quit school, a college after one year. And uh, after a few months at the um, uh, the pharmacy, um, I uh, became a full-time employee at the Ritz. And, uh, you know, like Jerry said, I opened the mail, I answered the phone, uh, and I was a... Um, a sponge. I listened to every single thing Jerry had to say on the telephone, and he was speaking to booking agents because right. we were looking to fill a room that was uh, probably about fifteen hundred seats, as many nights as possible. Right. And, um, so I listened to him. I listened to how he spoke to the booking agents. You know, I I um, I started looking at the contracts and what they entailed, and I learned quickly so at some point jerry trusted me uh to talk to ian copeland at fbi booking or to rob light at icm um and i started speaking to all these agents and it was the beginning of just a wonderful learning experience and uh, it was the beginning of my music career and uh uh, I, I'm glad when Jerry interviewed me, I didn't know who he was because I probably would have freaked out. You know, he, he started at the William Morris Agency in um, New York, along with uh, David Geffen, sure. and they were both in the mailroom. And, it's, and Jerry had what, you know, I guess in New York, you could say chutzpah. Right. <laughs> he, had, he had a lot of that, and he became an agent. He was one of the people who helped bring the Rolling Stones to the United States. He worked with Sam Cooke and Muhammad Ali. He discovered Carly Simon and the voices of East Harlem. Both those acts wound up being at Electra, yeah. where, where later on, that was my first gig at a record yeah. company, was at Electra. But Jerry was very, very special. He treated me beautifully. And, you know, to, up until the day he passed away, we were always in touch. Always. That's awesome. Absolutely. He was my, Jerry Brandt was my mentor. After about three years there at the Ritz, which people know present day as Webster Hall, um, I just felt like there was more out there. I was, I've always been curious. And um, so uh, I had a friend named Mitchell Krasnow and he said, Michael, my dad is leaving Warner Brothers and he's going to re-up and revive Electra Records. Electra was in the crapper, as they say, mm -hmm. and Bob had, an had had then had an extraordinary career in the music business. Um, so he became he came over to Electra to become this the uh, chairman. Again, uh, I had an interview, and um, Bob took a liking to me, and we talked about again the Great American Songbook, and he was an art maven, and there was art all over his office of the um, artists of the day, whether that was uh, you know Keith Haring, Jean Michel Basquiat, um, and we just started talking about art, and he liked that I knew about all kinds of art as well. He said, "I'm going to give you, I'll give you a call. I'm, I'm just setting up my staff." And shook hands, and I left. I was so nervous. I was so excited. And about two weeks later, Bob called and said, "I'm going to give you a job here at Electra in the A and R department." I was shocked. I, I, I said thank you. I hung up the phone. I cried. Yeah. And I, and I called somebody I knew in the music business, and I said, "What's A and R?" 
<laughs> well, they laughed. They laughed in my face. Right. And soon Don't I. You know? Yeah. Soon I found out that A and R means artist and repertoire. Sure. And if you ask me, artist and repertoire, that department is the most important department at a record company. If I were, it, as I started signing artists, you know, they had to sell, and there's yeah. only so long one can work in an A&R department and uh, not find great artists. Right. Now, I was getting, uh, okay, so I start around, I don't know, March or April of 1983 at Electra Records. I, it was so exciting. I was like 21, 22 now, and uh, I, I had like a, a fabulous office that looked over Rockefeller Center, and they gave me an assistant. And That's the um, whole thing. That's the. It was the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, you know, I would I would meet with um, lawyers and publishers and managers and uh, artists. Sometimes artists themselves, mm -hmm. uh, and I would listen to music. And people would mail in, oh, God, cassettes, cassettes <laughs> by the dozen. Yeah. And sometimes I'd have boxes. So I said, Tony, she was my assistant. I said, let's open up all these envelopes and boxes, read where they're coming from, see if anything sounds interesting. What is the band's name? What are the song titles? Are they repped by anybody? And... Um, I really did listen to a lot of music back then. And I felt early on as well that I knew the difference between good and great. Now, I um, I listened to all those cassettes and lots of stuff was like really good. But, you know, when you think of good and then you think of great and the great part for me was an artist who uh, has had a certain charisma yeah the songs had a universal appeal yeah so that i um but okay now i'm figure i'm starting to figure this all out where do you suppose that comes from that is that is that something you just had i mean or, or were you because it almost sounds like you know both what you're saying now and kind of what how you describe it in a documentary is like there's almost this kind of like it's an eighth it's it's inside of who you are, but there's also almost like an intellectualism about it. You know what, you know what sounds good. You know what should sound good. You know what people will like. There, it's like layers of. I, I think it just, it was something innate in me. And as, like I said, growing up, I just listened to so much different music. Yeah. And in the early days, people like Pod um, Run Grin, Lou Reed, David Bowie, mm -hmm. uh, 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 Roxy Music, um, yeah. They became like my favorite bands until yeah. I hit CBGB and I was hearing people like the Dead Boys and Cherry Vanilla. And at one point, Hilly Crystal brought over a number of artists from the UK, uh, Pauline Murray's band Penetration, Eddie and the Hot Rods, The Damned. Uh, so my ears were always open to stuff. Yeah. And maybe I had a little ego back then, a healthy ego that said, right I know that that sucks and that's really good so yes it was this innate thing in me and um so i just started working at electra and about a year later i signed a little group called metallica 
Right. <laughs> and and as they say, the rest is history. They right. were they were on a tiny label called Megaforce Records. At that point, Megaforce Records had maybe three records out: Metallica, Anthrax, maybe Raven, and Testament. Um, but the label that's that's all they could do was put out. They had no money. So at one point, the late great Johnny Z said, "You know, I have a band. They're going to be huge, and they're called Raven." Um, would you give me some seed money uh, so they could do some demos? So uh, there were a power trio, two brothers and another member uh, from the UK. And I gave him, I think, $5,000. And he came back with five songs. They were very good songs. Yeah. And I still like Raven to this day. But the problem was I heard Kill Em All by Metallica. And it was a record that was relentless. It was a, like nothing else i ever heard yeah. in a heavy metal band i'm thinking maybe that was the early days in 83 84 when we used the word thrash sure um so you know i heard this record and i just knew i had to have these people in my life uh, they were called alcoholica in the early days and i thought oh this is perfect we were young people who drank a lot right. um, but you know from the get-go i felt like hearing that record they were, they were also very smart young people yeah. who knew what their direction was and they gave it to us full speed ahead. That is a, a catapulting into a completely different realm, right? You know, signing this band that goes on to, uh, to be what they are. You eventually find yourself at Geffen, uh, not long after that, signing people mm -hmm. like White Zombie. Um, Misfits. Misfits, yeah, right. Um, you know, again, if you get a Metallica, you could probably live the rest of your life as like, hey, it's the guy signed Metallica. Holy crap. You know, and then you you continue on and it's it just kept going. Um, what about after that? So, you you, you know, you're kind of sure. at, at that point in the business, you are you are a guy now who's doing stuff. You are all, right. Every, all the young people, all of the um, like I mentioned earlier lawyers managers publishers they all want to talk to me because yeah. of metallica to this day when yeah. i got like i was at the misfits on the weekend and they're like are you that guy i said i am that guy and then can we take a picture with you said, of course you could take a picture with me and they're That's like awesome. oh we love metallica we love the misfits and uh, so you know that metallica made my career my a and career right. uh, i never signed anything as big as that uh after that but i always signed things that i felt were respectable, you know, yeah. uh, at one point. So, you know, I was at Electra, I was at Geffen, I went back to Electra, I went back to Geffen. Right. For one small minute, there was a label that got revived called Uni. And I worked there for one minute. And I signed a group from New York called Swans. Okay. Fabulous group. And then at one point, I worked for Chris Blackwell, who owned Island Records. Uh, and then at one point, he sold Island Records. And he started a company called um, Palm Pictures. And uh, Palm Pictures was half independent feature film and record company. Right. I was there for a short amount of time. We're now in the 2000s. And I, I, I worked with and signed and made Chris Jericho, the wrestler's first album, Fozzie. And then I signed a little group from... Uh, Texas called Speed Dealer. And I had Jason Newstead from Metallica produce them. And I also worked with um, a band called Local H from Chicago, a duo. And I had Jack Douglas 
um, produce them. And, you know, we knew Jack from John Lennon and Aerosmith, and uh, we just thought he was a great producer. So, you know, you're here now. You're now uh, in this documentary. You've written this book. You know, you've kind of a life story that's kind of amazing. Um, so do you, do you still have any sort of connection to the music industry? Do you still do? Keep in mind that during that, in that 25 years, yeah. um, I, I was an alcoholic and mm -hmm. I then got sober. Uh, right now I've been clean and sober 16 years, mm -hmm. uh, which is incredible. Um, I also acquired uh, HIV and um, that was a horror story. Um, which led to having full-blown AIDS at one point when there was no medication out. That was over 32 years ago. And right now I take one state-of-the-art HIV pill and my viral load is at zero. You can't even find it in my body, which is, you know, like I, I, I use this word blessing a lot because yeah. I really have had a blessed life. Absolutely. You know? So officially, 1980 to 2005, I'm active in the music business. After 2005, I start taking photographs because I've always been, uh, I've always loved black and white photography. I loved all kinds of photography. Right. And um, I've made three books uh, and it's mostly all of uh, portraits of men. And that was cool. That's been cool. Yeah. So after 2005, um, you know, at one point, Cindy Lauper called and she says, you know, we know it's in that voice of hers, that Queen's voice of hers. Yeah. Michael, you know, she loved all the work that I've done. She trusted me as a, a as a person, as a human being. Yeah. And she wanted me to A&R two of her albums, which I did. So that was in moving forward 2009, 2010. So little things like that happened all the time. Right. There was a band from South Florida. Um, called Ether Coven. I love them. Uh, unfortunately, my friend Pete, who fronted the band, died two days ago of a uh, colon cancer. Horrible. Yeah, horrible. Just horrible. Um, I, in bits and pieces, you know, I still stay in touch with Lars from Metallica. I stay in touch with Cindy. Um, there are artists that I still stay in touch with. And, you know, I still am curious and I still pay attention to what's out there. I speak to my friends who are A&R people at different um, hard rock, heavy metal labels. Um, so I'm still always aware of what's going on. Or yeah. if I hear about somebody whose name sounds interesting to me or I look at what their song titles are all about if that sounds interesting to me I will go out and see them right. so I'm never that far from uh being on the street hearing going to see bands yeah that that was something that I was that I was really curious about if that stuck around you know I think oh absolutely yeah 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 you know I never I have never lost my love of music yeah and um like I said you know uh I'm always out and about. I'm always, uh, people are always uh, turning me on to new artists and, you know, that's awesome. It's interesting. I have this debate with people all the time where it's kind of like, you know, we live in an odd kind of pop culture moment and there's more out there than there maybe has ever been, but there's also a tendency for people to kind of go, nah, this is my thing. This is my uh -huh. thing. And I, I've learned, I've seen and watched and heard all the stuff that I need to, I don't need any of this new crap. I don't need any, whatever. I don't trust any of whatever, you know, whatever that attitude is. And, I feel like it's it's rarer to hear what you're talking about, which is to still have that love, to still have that interest in checking out new stuff. Always. Listen, these days, you know, 
at one point I sold my vinyl collection, which I don't want to talk about because um, I was a drug addict. Right. Uh, so I've been collecting vinyl again and I, you know, I find what, what's affordable on eBay. So, yeah. you know, my love is still for hard music, but I've been buying a lot of female vocalists from the 1950s on eBay. So my love goes from these female vocalists to um, heavy metal. And yeah. for me, the darker, the noisier, the more brutal and or majestic sounds that I can hear, that's what I want to hear. A lot of this stuff will never get on the radio. I right. don't care. Um, but if it's something that, uh, like, my ears just perk up, if it's something that uh, sounds good to me, sounds wonderful, that's something that has a point of view um so yes i i'm still curious i still love music more than ever and i still it still runs the gamut from vocalists from back in the day to hard rock and heavy metal but you know we could probably take out hard rock it's mostly heavy metal and yeah. like i said the blacker the darker the 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 more brutal that stimulates my senses. And now I have tinnitus because I've never wore earplugs in my oh, yeah. entire life. And you know what? I'm 63. I'll be up next in October. I'll be 64. I'll have 16 years clean and sober. And you know what? Life is good. That's tremendous. That's wonderful. If it, you know, people come to the show or people get your book or the documentary or something, as I'm sure, you, you know, as you say in the documentary, as I'm sure you feel or felt when you were younger, Growing up where you grew up, you were in New York City. I mean, that's you're basically there. You know, it's like you grew up in Hollywood or New York. You're in it. Um, I'm sure it didn't feel like that when you were younger. But I don't know if advice is the right word. But what would you tell to people who are interested in either getting in the music world or, or pursuing the things that they're most passionate about and kind of treating it seriously beyond, you know, oh, this is something I like. I like listening to records. I like watching movies or whatever it is. What would you say to people who are like, I want this to be more, as you said before. I want to do something more with this. Well. That's like a big question that requires a, a couple of different answers. Okay, sure. Like I said, as a young person, I was curious. Yeah. I knew, I didn't know what exactly what my position would be in the business, yeah. but I knew I had to do something other than watch music shows on TV. Just watch it. I was, I, was uh, I guess you could say, young and determined. Yeah. And that started uh, realizing itself. Um, when I happened to walk into a building called the Ritz. Yeah. And like I said, I was a sponge and I paid attention to everything that my boss was talking about. So it helped me learn how to deal with artist contracts. Yeah, yeah. Specific to uh, the Ritz. Uh, once I started at record companies, I, um, I was looking to sign artists who I felt had a certain charisma about them who um wrote music wrote songs that had universal appeal uh, because i worked for a major corporation you know we had to sell records yeah. uh, so that um you know I, I was looking for artists that i felt like could sell a lot of records i think if young people are listening to this um and you want to be in the business you know at some point you'll figure out uh what it is you want to do in the business if you're a musician and you're serious about your craft don't say no you know the answer is always yes right. you know 
you know, you don't, um, young artists, you don't know, they don't know what, what's going to happen with their lives and their career. But like I said, if they're dedicated to what they're singing about, then you know what? You're going to go out there in this crazy world in 2023 and um, make demos or create uh, L- independent records on your own, go on the road, sell T-shirts and hoodies and CDs and stickers and just be the best that you can be. Because when you're out there uh, performing live and you're, in your mind, being the best that you can be, you never know who's going to be out there in the audience that's going to say yes to you. Right. You know, like back in the day, for instance, you know, that person was me. Yeah. And, you know, you know, an A&R person or a music company can help change your life. So be honest, be dedicated to your music, and you never know what can happen. I think that's great. I think that's ex- yeah. The, is the the events going to be a showing of the doc, and is there a Q and A element to it, or is it just oh, like a? Uh, I'll be showing the doc at you know at the uh, what is it called the Avalon Theater yep. in Marysville, and um, I will also do a little bit of reading from my uh, book. I am Michael Alago, my memoir. And yep. uh, we're se- we're selling the book there as well. Awesome. So yeah, it's both screening of the documentary and um, Q and A on both uh, the doc and the book. Once I read maybe bits of a few chapters. Awesome. Well, again, I appreciate it. I appreciate. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. Yeah, it's exciting. So I appreciate you doing. It. Appreciate you being willing to come and thank you. Absolutely. So oh, Mike, thank you very much, and uh, have a wonderful day. All right. Well, that's going to be the show for this week. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I really appreciate Michael being willing to sit down and do this. As I said, he was really generous with his time, and I think it's a good conversation about following your passion. Thanks to him for that. Uh, As we said, he'll be at the Avalon Theater this Saturday, July 29th at 6 p.m. He'll be showing the documentary, Who the F is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Olago, as well as reading from his book, I Am Michael Olago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death which he wrote about his life and career. So the book will be available at the theater for purchase, uh, and the documentary is streaming on uh, a variety of platforms, Amazon, Tubi, and other places. So be sure and check that out. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Hope you get to go to the show. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Axiona Energia, for sponsoring the podcast. As always, if you like the show, please be sure and follow it. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, lots of other places where podcasts are available. So be sure to tune into the show next week. I think we're going to make our transition into the football season here soon. We're going to talk to some coaches, maybe even some players, and, and might even have a special guest. So be sure and look out for that next week, and we'll see you on Thursday.